time, you got to stop stingin'. Source of the problems at the origin. You got lyrics that have got me cringing. You're like a fish, why put your damn engine? If you, you want to know, wanna know the real deal about the three, well, let me tell you what triple trouble, y'all. We're going to bring you up to speed. So check it out. Hello, and welcome to episode 1137 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I work for The Ringer joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, and I know it is a big day for you because you finally published your post on Louis Perdomo (laughs) hitting four triples. I know that you were really impatient for the playoffs to end so that you could finally write about this. So congratulations on the big day. Thank you. I, uh, I, I felt an extraordinary amount of pressure as I was uh, as I was writing it. I yeah. collected all the videos. Many other thought, writers Great. were chasing this story. <laughs> I know they were right behind you. <laughs> the other day, I, I had also published this post about Javier Baez striking out, and I, I remember seeing in like a, in Game Five of the NLCS, Javier Baez struck out looking, and then he took like a little he took a swing after the pitch had gone by, and the umpire had all, already called him out, and he like he took a swing, not just like a half swing, he took a real swing, but it was like literally a second late and uh-huh. i scrawled it down on my notepad and i was like this is gonna be great and then <laughs> i can't wait to write about this when the playoffs are over and i found i did all this internet searching and i found another case of him doing the exact same thing in like august of 2016 and i was like ah it's a pattern and so i got i was really excited and then the day came where i was like well i need something to write about i'm gonna do the bias thing and i started it and then i thought what <laughs> what is this so but somebody published the, it. So yeah, it, no, it, it definitely definitely got published. It's nice to not have editorial oversight. But somebody <laughs> somebody left a comment. He was like, oh, "I usually like Jeff's stuff, but this seems like it's one relevant video and a bunch of words just kind of in between." And I read that comment like, "Yeah, no, you kind of you kind of <laughs> saw through it." But still, I think uh, I think something like ten or eleven percent of the voters decided that he struck out swinging instead of looking. Which, yeah, you know what? I'm open to it. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, tell me about Perdomo's four triples. Well. Most of them were defensive mistakes. <laughs> one, one triple was a uh, a line drive, pretty much at Keon Broxton. That Keon Broxton seemed to lose in the lights, so he ranged over, and at the last second, he turned his head away, and the ball got by him. The next triple was a flare in the left center gap against Cincinnati, and Billy Hamilton was closing in, and the left fielder was closing in, and it looked like Hamilton kind of pulled up a little bit, so he slid and just missed the ball, and it got by, and Pernoma kept going. The third triple was a legitimate. Triple two, unsurprisingly, triples alley in San Francisco. I think Hunter Pence kind of took a funny route, but it was the most legitimate of all the triples that Perdomo hit. He uh, hit the ball hard the other way. That's a good triple. And the fourth triple is on the last game of the season where Perdomo just hit like a kind of ordinary ground ball down the third baseline. But I don't know if you've seen Pablo Sandoval recently. I have. (laughs) Can't really stop those balls anymore. Ball got by him, goes into the left field corner. Now, this is a ground ball into the left field corner in San Francisco. And Perdomo wound up on on third base. But Jarrett Parker was the left fielder. He went over to try to retrieve the ball, but he seemed to take his time. I think he he approached the ball and sort of assumed, oh, Perdomo's a pitcher. He's going to stop at second. He didn't do that. He went all the way to third. And so Jarrett Parker's, I don't know, lackadaisical behavior might have gifted Perdomo his fourth triple. He is the first pitcher since 1955 to hit at least four triples in a season. The Kansas City Royals in franchise history do not have four pitcher triples, and their pitchers used to hit more than they do now, so that's like 2,300 plate appearances. The last team 
to have at least four pitcher triples was the 1977 Pittsburgh Pirates. And as much as probably three of the four Perdomo triples maybe shouldn't have happened if the defense were better, at the end of the day, he did end up on third base. Many triples sort of require some sort of defensive mistake or miscommunication, and Perdomo was willing to go for it. And I found some cases of of balls that Perdomo hit that might have turned into triples too. There was one where he hit a double where the ball kind of stuck at the base of the wall, but he got to second because I guess he hit the ball too hard. There was a a little flare he hit to right center field against St. Louis where Randall Grichuk made a diving catch, but had the ball gotten by him, his backup wasn't in place. That was going to be a triple. And in Perdomo's first game of the season, he hit this opposite field fly ball to the right field corner in San Diego. And Jarrett Parker, in one of his two games, two starts in right field, made a leaping catch against the wall where Perdomo might have had three bases. So first game, Parker robs him of a triple. Last game, Parker gives him a triple, playing in the other corner. Luis Perdomo, according to StatCast, the fastest pitcher in baseball, and as fast as Lorenzo Cain as an everyday player. Huh. All right. Lots of fun facts there. Glad you got those off your chest. And <laughs> it's particularly impressive because this is a, a very triples-averse era. Like, this was, I think, the hardest season ever to triple or tied with the hardest with uh, 2013. There were, what, point one six triples per game which you know has to do with a lot of factors i guess fewer balls in play period and then lots of balls just going over the fence instead of hitting off the fence or whatever triples often do and maybe positioning is better maybe runners are better about not trying to stretch into triples at times when they shouldn't i don't know there are many factors behind that but it is very hard to hit triples these days so even better. Good job, Perdomo. <laughs> I think, I haven't confirmed this, but I, I think that the Blue Jays actually just set the record for the fewest triples in a season by a team. Uh-huh. They had five. Huh. The Blue okay. Jays had five, and Luis Perdomo had four. Yeah. Maybe fewer irregular outfield fences and dimensions probably has something to do with it. So, yeah, which is a shame because everyone loves triples. But if you love triples, you should love Perdomo. So now we know. I want to banter about a couple things before we get to emails. Got a lot of emails lined up, but everyone this week, of course, is talking about Carlos Beltran and John Carl Stanton for different reasons. Stanton as a trade candidate, Beltran as a recent retiree. So not a, a shock. Beltran retired. I think we all sensed that was coming, probably. He was very diminished as a player and was losing playing time and was 40 years old, and he finally won that elusive world series so this seemed like the perfect time to go out and indeed that is what he decided to do and so we've gotten many waves of appreciation of carlos beltran and people talking about his hall of fame case of course because that's what we do uh, the second that a player retires who is in that kind of range or that conversation we kind of pre have that conversation even though we all have five (laughs) years to sit and wait to actually have it in any kind of meaningful way but it's been fun to review Beltran's career and also who he is as a person and that's the thing I mean it almost reminded me of the previous week when we were all talking about Roy Halladay in this way and obviously Beltran is fine this is not a sad tragic occasion as it was when we were talking about Halliday, but there are a lot of parallels between these guys in that they were essentially the same age I think Beltran was born about three weeks before Halliday was and if anything this just makes Halliday's death sadder, but the fact that their careers overlapped, their ages were the same, they were 
kind of equally valuable as players, uh, depending on what war you use. Beltron was, you know, somewhere like two to four wins ahead of, of Halliday, and, and they were both kind of perfect players in a way, at least at their peaks. I mean, Halliday had better seasons, higher peak, probably seasons where he was the best pitcher in baseball. Beltron probably didn't have that on the hitter side, but they both had sort of a, an overlapping period where they were among the best players of the game and, and didn't really have any weaknesses in their game. And I think the other commonality that has been really nice to see, because you know, we all know Carl Beltran's numbers and can be fun to run through them again and, and review just how good he was at every aspect of the game, but all the stories that have come out about what good people they were. I think that was the most touching thing about all the holiday remembrances in the previous week, and we've heard the same thing about Carlos Beltran and just, you know, how he would be generous with his time, how he has helped people, how he is retiring to help people more, and fortunately he got to hear all of these nice things that people were saying about him, which Halliday didn't. So you, among many people, wrote a story about how Beltran was just a, a complete player, which doesn't necessarily mean that he's better or more valuable or more deserving of honors than someone who was less complete but equally valuable. But there is something really satisfying about looking at his stats and remembering who he was, especially as a young guy who could do everything. Yeah, Beltran kind of came around almost at the right time. Maybe he was a little ahead of his time in terms of when he peaked. He was one of those players that you can really appreciate when you have all of the numbers that we have now, and it's easy to take them for granted. But even 10 years ago, we didn't have the uh, we didn't really have wins above replacement on any website that I can think of. I think that people weren't so accustomed to base running and defensive metrics, and Meltron was good at it all. And he came up for just a dreadful Royals team that had a lot of top prospects, but he was the only one who really, really did anything. He's a guy who came up and he became successful almost immediately, even though he never played in AAA. He played like a third of a season in, in AA. The Royals were just so excited to, to use him. And he bumped Johnny Damon, I think it was, out of center field almost immediately. And uh, he's he was just so amazingly good and he fulfilled nearly every role that you can think of a player filling over the course of a long career, aside from, I guess, he didn't, uh, I don't think he pitched. So that's one role he... He didn't fill, but, you know, maybe he'll have a, another career. I saw Jake Peavy wants to come back to the Major League, so maybe yeah. in a year Carlos Beltran's going to want to make a comeback and try it out as a uh, as a pitcher. But <laughs> in terms of just his, uh, you know, his his humanity, his good role model behavior, I mm -hmm. think it's, it's easy if you as the average person are having an ordinary day. Maybe it's a maybe it's a Saturday. You can think I am a I'm a good person. I'm going to do some some nice things for other people. But then when you have when you have a, a work day and you you go to your job and maybe you have things piling up or you're just feeling a lot of pressure, then you can start to feel almost necessarily selfish or self-involved and you can kind of be be on edge and you might be less of a good human than you might be under other more relaxed circumstances so maybe you might have a warped opinion of yourself you might think well at my core i am a good person but i'm just so busy that i don't often get to act necessarily like the good person that i i want to be or could be if you're a professional baseball player, I, I've never been one. I never will be one. But I have to imagine that you're kind of under a lot of stress almost all the time. Maybe you get used to it over the course of two decades in mm -hmm. the major leagues. And, of course, you do have an offseason. And, of course, you technically only have like four hours of work a day. But we both know that's not true. 
<laughs> you're always at the ballpark. Yeah. Just... Less if you're a, a DH and a part-time player. <laughs> so that's that. true. His glove yeah. was retired in ceremony, so that <laughs> that opened up some afternoons for him. You know, the worst part, he played defense after that ceremony. He played <laughs> right. in the outfield. I wonder if they had to <laughs> dig it up. Or I wonder if there's actually a glove still still down there. So I don't know exactly how much time Beltran was given to teammates and, and the community when he was a younger player, I guess. But I think it, it speaks volumes about someone like Beltran or, or a comparable player, like Halliday. I keep doing this wrong. Halliday. Uh-huh. Responding to listener feedback, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying holiday my entire life, and I just looked it up, and yeah, no, sure enough, holiday. Yeah, the A is yeah. meant to be pronounced as it is. There was uh, also a holiday, which is just confusing. There's, it, there's a, another prominent player with that name, and there's the less prominent Brian Holiday, Holiday. <laughs> I don't look. There's a lot of there's a lot of words. There's a lot of syllables, and they sound kind of alike. You know what I'm talking about. But anyway, yes. I think it it speaks volumes about someone like Beltran or Holiday, where they're still able to to do so much for other people while fulfilling this role as a very prominent Major League Baseball player. The spotlight is always on them. They're constantly getting attention from from fans. They're always just, yeah, you know, just always just always feeling the stress of being a, a celebrity. And to mm-hmm. still be able to do so much for other people is uh, is something that I would like to think that I'd be able to do, but I, I know almost for a fact that I couldn't because sometimes I get stressed out by the silliest things, like writing about Luis Perdomo. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think, you know, if you play for 20 years in the major leagues and when you retire, no one really has anything bad to say about you except that you once struck out looking on a borderline curveball, I think <laughs> that is, uh, that's pretty good. I think, you know, we didn't have to review any quote-unquote problematic storylines in Carlos Beltran's career. He was just always above board and, and without reproach, and that is admirable as well, his, his ability to steal bases at a remarkable clip or efficiency and, and everything else he did, hit for average, hit for power, be a great playoff player. So I actually might have a chance to vote for Carlos Beltran as a Hall of Famer if they don't kick me out of the BBWA <laughs> before then. I don't remember exactly what year I'll be eligible for the first time, but I think I've been in there about five years, and He'll be eligible in five years, so it's got to be right around that time. So I would certainly cast my vote for him and would look forward to doing so. And I think he, you know, he's just about right at the level of an average Hall of Fame center fielder, Jaws-wise. And I was going to say I don't see the argument against him. I do. I can imagine what the argument will be, probably just that... He was never the best player in baseball or the best player in his league, which isn't really fair because he overlapped with late career bonds and then prime Albert Pujols. So it was very difficult for him to be the best player in baseball at any point. I guess 2006 was the closest he came, probably his peak season with the Mets, and he was fantastic and probably still not quite as good as Pujols. But I never am very persuaded by that argument about you know, he was never the best. I think, I mean, many Hall of Famers were the best at some point, but I would guess that how many were never the best? That, that'd that actually be a, a fun stat segment or something. Just how many people in the Hall of Fame were never the best player in their league, even just going by one year war or something? I mean, it's got to be a high percentage because in a lot of cases, you have guys who had 
20-year careers who were great the whole time, and if you overlapped with one of those people, as most players do, then there's no shame in being the second best or the third best over a very long period. That still gets you into the Hall of Fame, unless we're just saying that only the best player at any one time can be in the Hall, which is, like, extreme small Hall, so... I don't care about that line of <laughs> argument at all. And if you think he's a borderline statistical candidate, which, you know, is true. I mean, he's not a slam dunk. He's over the line for me, but I could see if you quibble with that. But the postseason record, I, I just I think that has to be your, your tiebreaker, right? I mean, when you play 65 games, 256 plate appearances with an OPS over 1,000 in the playoffs, that is extraordinary. So... I think that should get him in, if if nothing else. And really, I would just think that anyone who doesn't consider his statistical case compelling is probably either not looking at a metric that sums up everything he did well, or maybe just didn't pay that close attention because he was playing for the Royals for some of his best years. Or, you know, I, I just I don't really see a strong argument for leaving him out other than the fact that maybe he doesn't pass that sniff test or, or smell test. But you were talking about that when we talked about Halliday last week, how you kind of have that sniff test. So does he pass your sniff test? I mean, the reason why the sniff test is dangerous is because different people and different potential voters have different senses of smell, so to speak, <laughs> right? Like you're... Your smell is calibrated by war and by evaluating players in that way, and someone else's smell is dependent on whatever, RBI or something. So that's not really the way I would want to settle a Hall of Fame <laughs> debate, but does he pass that test for you? Yep. And I think that ultimately, no matter how much research Hall of Fame voters do on players, I have a sense that at the end of the day, it does kind of come down to the sniff test for everyone anyway. I think that people have a gut sense, and I think that the human tendency is to search for information that confirms that sense. I can tell you, by the way, just pulled up the baseball reference year by year leaderboard for war. I looked for pitchers and I'll tell you, I'll tell you who by this measure was never the best pitcher in baseball. Jack Morris, non-Hall of Famer. <laughs> right. Jack Morris, never the best pitcher in baseball, which is weird because you'd think that the people who have thrown their support behind him would be the same people who insist that you'd be the best. Anyway, Jack Morris trying to make the Hall of Fame on the strength of one game that he pitched. But <laughs> yeah, Carlos Beltran passes my sniff test. Of course, it's calibrated differently, but that's kind of the whole point of having several hundred people voting for the Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not one of them yet. You're not one of them yet. Did you have a vote this year? For, for anything? anything? No, no. I never have votes because I'm in the, the New York chapter oh, of right. the Baseball Writers Association, which is very large, and the votes kind of pass, I guess, randomly from person to person. So even after years, I have not had any vote. So mm -hmm. I didn't uh, have to get any angry tweets from, I don't know, people who didn't like your Jordan Montgomery second place vote for the AL Rookie of the Year award. Can you imagine <laughs> how easy your life must be if you are passionately angry about who someone votes for second place? Did you get a lot of that? Did you get blowback for that? I got enough. Now, so I uh, th there's a setting, there's a setting I discovered on Twitter where you can basically not see people who haven't verified their Twitter accounts through yeah. their phone or their email. And I, uh, I've turned it on. I'll tell you what, Twitter's a lot more, a lot clearer, uh, a lot less busy than it used to be. There's a lot of unver. Now, here's the downside is there are certain people who, who I like who apparently haven't verified their accounts, but eh, you win some, you lose some. It's fine. Is that, is that what that means? That verified only? T I thought that was like no, 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 no. check mark people. That's different. Oh, okay. So uh, right. that's, uh, that's your verified identity. But if I guess you can confirm your Twitter account using uh. your phone or your email, uh, uh, just okay. to. 
be clear that yeah. it's linked. I think that by using that filter, then you lose a lot of like egg avatars or people right. who are just clearly on there to troll non-serious mm -hmm. Twitter users. So it's it's one way to weed out a certain amount of riffraff. Now it also weeds out a certain amount of non-riffraff, but whatever, it's Twitter. It's not important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. And we also wanted to talk briefly about John Carl Stanton, just because everyone <laughs> is. I'm sure we'll have other opportunities to talk about him this winter. But right now, the trade rumors are really ramping up because it's the GM meetings, and Derek Jeter has spoken out about Stanton and has evidently said, quote, everything is complicated, which is a <laughs> philosophical player quote taken out of context. But Such is life. Yeah. I, I guess the question is, the central question here is, what do you think Stanton's surplus value is? And that's a really hard question to answer because, of course, he is, we know, signed for three more years and $77 million, which is not cheap, but he is an MVP caliber player, or certainly was this year. So that is uh, that's perfectly fine. If it if it were just three and seventy seven, he'd have plenty of value, and he would bring back lots of prospects, and and that would be great. And we could talk about that very easily. But he also has an additional seven years on the deal for two hundred eight million, and he can opt out of that if he wants to after two thousand twenty. But we don't know if he will. It's really. It's impossible to predict whether he will, really, because so much of the opt-out decision comes down to the player's walk year. So I don't know what Stanton's going to do the year before he has that decision. And we, we saw this year with, what, Ian Kennedy and, and Johnny Cueto and Masahiro Tanaka. I mean, their decisions not to opt-out were largely dependent on their 2017. So that's going to be the case with Stanton, too. And if he doesn't opt-out, well, then you're on the hook, you know, presumably— he will be declining or will be coming off a down year, and that's why he won't have opted out. So then you'll be stuck with a guy for another seven years, and who knows how he's going to age with his kind of unusual profile as a player and just as a physical being. So it's really hard to say. Either he has a lot of surplus value or he has, like, no surplus value. So just given the sums involved and the uncertainties involved, it's going to be tough to figure out what he is worth. And I guess that's why when we were talking about the Krasnick survey last time and how a lot of baseball insiders, or at least a sizable minority, think that he won't be traded, that is probably why. Not because the Marlins don't want to clear the contract, but just because no one is totally sure what the contract is exactly. Yeah, this one is very complicated, as Derek Jeter said. I think this is this is sort of its banter part about Giancarlo Stanton, but also in large part about Barry, Derek Jeter, who, mm -hmm. okay, so the Marlins still have some baseball operations people. They still have Michael Hill. I believe they still have a lot of people who have served in a front office role before, but Derek Jeter seems to have a little more, a little more say in operations than I was kind of expecting. I thought that he might be sort of around to be the uh, the friendly baseball friendly face of new management and and then he would i don't know maybe kind of rubber stamp some things but i'm starting mm -hmm. to get the sense that jeter is more involved than i expected him to be oh, yeah yeah i don't look Derek jeter really good player <laughs> called overrated so often he might even be kind of underrated if you go back and look at what he was maybe kind of in over his head maybe kind yeah. of a a transactional 
moron for now <laughs> yeah. let's give him some time it's hard but... to know right i i did a, an interview with stephen goldman of the excellent infinite inning podcast on the ringer pod not long ago just about jeter and kind of the precedents for jeter like great players who've gone on to have front office roles and it's not that distinguished a group in terms of their front office performance it's it's just, you know, it's two different skill sets, and one doesn't necessarily translate to the other. And right now, Jeter is kind of out of step with the times, just in the sense that we don't really get to see former players running baseball teams anymore, at least not former players who've kind of gotten that position because they are well-known and famous and respected as people, but haven't really put in any time to train as baseball executives. It's a pretty specialized job now. There's a lot you have to know, and, you know, Jeter might be fine. Who knows? He's been good at everything else in his life to this point, but it's it's a big learning curve, and he is stepping into deep waters that are patrolled by people who really know what they're doing, so it's it's tough. <laughs> it's, now he's, he's immediately facing one of the more difficult transactional propositions in all of baseball right now. Yeah, right. I don't know. There are not very many players who would be more difficult to move than John Carlos Sand just because of his his unique contract, but I don't think that there is a defense for looking at Sand and thinking I want a team's top 4 prospects for him. Right. That just doesn't make sense. It's just too expensive. And look, in theory, and maybe even in practice, in theory or in practice, baseball could stand to have more diversity of thought. There's been a lot written about this and, you know, the how every front office is starting to look the same and every general manager or, I guess, president of baseball operations is thinking in the same way. And, and then it, it just, you know, the field is diminished by having unanimity of thought, I guess. Mm -hmm. But when you get to this in practice... If you have a general manager who is looking at things in a in a different way, or I guess a CEO who's looking at things in a in a different way, well, the the fact of the matter is that the people who run their teams like I don't know Wall Street businesses or some sort of finance word, they are doing so because they are they believe they are optimizing the process to make the team as good as possible at some point or for as long as possible. They're trying to be really efficient, and if you have somebody who steps in like Derek Jeter. He's coming at things from a different perspective. He sees Sand and he thinks, wow, look at that superstar. What could be more desirable than a power-hitting, young, marketable superstar? And he's right. It's more complicated than that. And if you have someone like that step in with this power, the likelihood, like, I don't know, like Dave Stewart, is that person's just going to be taken advantage of. And then they're going to lose assets to other teams who are going to celebrate the fact that they just made moves that are positive for them. So I don't uh, I don't know how you accomplish greater diversity of thought in the way that baseball teams operate, because if you have 29 teams or however many that think that they're trying to optimize the process, then unless someone comes along who approaches things very differently, but is great, I don't know what you do. So maybe mm -hmm. you just need a a really good throwback talent evaluator. Maybe that's <laughs> Derek Jeter. Yeah. Yeah, MLB is running a diversity fellowship program for the first time, I believe, ever this year, and that might be worth talking about at some point. But yes, I mean, being a Hall of Famer is also a, another way maybe to get one of these jobs, but I just don't know. Like, is Stanton more of a salary dump guy, or is he more of a you-have-to-give-us-a-top-prospect type guy? Like, I... I honestly have a hard time telling which he is, and maybe the Marlins will be prioritizing the salary 
dump side more so than the talent acquisition side. I don't know, given their financial constraints or what they've decided their financial constraints are. But I don't know how to value him. Like, just looking at the entirety of the contract, obviously you you can't just ignore the seven years post-opt-out. So you have to put some kind of percentage on that, I suppose, about how likely he is to pick up that option or not exercise the opt-out. And I don't know what percentage you put on it. I don't know how you project inflation will change how his contract is perceived. You know, by the end of his contract, when he's making, well, he's, I think he makes $25 million in his final year, which is uh, actually lower than he makes for most of those years. But, you know, when he's making $32 million in 2025, is that a lot? How much will that be at that point? You can't project the economy, and yet you kind of have to. So I just, I don't know. Like, what would you give up for Stanton if someone just said, you can have him, he'll accept a trade, he won't waive a no-trade clause, which is yet another complication here. You know, you'd think that he'd be eager to leave, but he does have to approve the trade. So if someone says, okay, you got him, or how do you value him over whatever he is, three years plus seven years, the possibility of 10 years, what is he for you? So what are what are those last seven? So he can opt out after 2020, and yes. then he has the uh, the seven years. What is that? Seven, two, two, 18, 208, 208, I believe. And then it has a, well, then there's a $10 there's million a buyout. There's option at the end. And a, yeah. yeah, and a $10 million buyout. So you're right. I guess it's 218 technically. So let's call it seven and 218. Okay, so plugging into that trusty contract evaluation tool that is uh-huh. using a, a steamer estimate right now. So that I set Stanton for a 10-year contract beginning uh now and he begins as a 5.3 war player that sounds about right he's super good so using the same eight million dollars per war etc 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 all these estimates no you need to know about all this the last seven years of his contract come out to a evaluation of you have any guesses uh i guess i'll say man 200 222.5 million almost oh, right on the nose of yeah. uh of what Stanton could be due. Now you can uh, move around these estimates. So if you think that a a win is worth a little more on the market, then that goes up to something like 230 or 235. But if you think that Stanton is going to age somewhat poorly, then that's bad news. Let's just say that's bad news. (laughs) So right now, it seems to me we're we're about to see sort of a, I don't know, it's not going to be a market reset, but we're going to get some market perspective, I Mm -hmm. think, in a year. When all of these really good players start talking about new contracts, I think we're going to learn a lot about Sam this coming year as well, because this past year, he trimmed his strikeout rate pretty substantially. He trimmed yep. it by like 20%. He just started hitting the ball more, but he didn't seem to sacrifice anything in terms of mm-hmm. power, which is just terrifying, by the way. Yeah. So he, uh, he in a sense, he... He hits the ball as hard as Aaron Judge, but he also hits the ball more than Aaron Judge. So I don't know why he didn't out hit Aaron Judge. I'll just blame the ballpark. In any <laughs> case, there's a lot to learn. But right now, I might actually say that it's kind of 50-50 whether Stanton would take that, uh, would use that opt-out clause yeah. or not. So that's, I don't know. I I am so glad I am not a general manager trying <laughs> to trade for Giancarlo Stanton. Yeah, or trying to trade him to someone yeah. else it's yeah it's really complicated so i'm sure we'll be talking about it much more this winter so that's enough for now i like that this is a podcast where we do talk about the big stories that everyone's talking about but we lead with perdomo hitting four triples <laughs> <laughs> we'll 
get to the four big triples. Stuff. <laughs> He's a pitcher. And after the last one, after the last triple he hit, uh, one of the Padres announcers, it wasn't like their their main announcer. He it was an unfamiliar, younger, worse sounding voice. Anyway, whoever it was said, uh, you know, Perdomo's really athletic, which we can see that he is. He's so fast. He said, this is a guy who, when he was younger, he came up as a shortstop. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, that's kind of, it's actually kind of a bummer to me because I didn't want Perdomo to have a hitting background because mm-hmm. then that would make this less of a fun fact. And I don't know where that came from because I could find no record of Luis Perdomo being a shortstop. I looked mm-hmm. up the other Luis Perdomo in the major leagues, who, by the way, also played for the Padres. He was a pitcher. He was never a shortstop. There is a Luis Perdomo in the minor leagues right now with, I think, the Nationals, and he is a, a first baseman slash outfielder, not a shortstop. When I when I did uh, some Googling and I searched for Luis Perdomo and shortstop, I found a lot of play logs where Luis Perdomo pitched and the game had a shortstop, so typical baseball. I can find no record of Luis Perdomo being a shortstop. Now, I don't want to... I assume that the local broadcast knows what it's talking about when you're dealing with a player who's been a regular for the last two years mm-hmm. on, on the Padres, but I don't know what that person was talking about. I don't think Luis Perdomo was ever a shortstop in any meaningful sense. Maybe when he was like 12, he played shortstop for his team, but I don't think that that is pertinent to anyone. I used to play <laughs> piano for eight years. No one would yeah, be like, oh, that Jeff Sullivan, he's a <laughs> classically trained pianist. No, I just, there was a piano in the living room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I have tapes of myself playing piano, but uh, how, how point, good were you? I was pretty good, actually, but uh, I've lost it all now. <laughs> All right, so we have a lot of emails to try to squeeze in here. Do you have a, a stat segment you want to use as a transition here, or it'll be quick? Okay. Okay, so I guess I'll just do it. Uh, I'll do it now. The Scott Boris propaganda machine has been effective in that I do now find Eric Hosmer more interesting than I think I uh, I want to, <laughs> but now I can't help it. So. Congratulations, Boris. You you got me. And what is interesting of the several things that are interesting to me about Eric Hosmer, it's that he sucks as a pull hitter, and he's yeah. very good going the other way. Here's what I mean. This past season, Eric Hosmer on balls hit to the pull side. Uh, the field is broken into thirds on fan graphs, and balls hit to the pull side. Hosmer had a 55 WRC plus that classifies as terrible. To the opposite field, he had a 283 WRC plus that classifies as amazing. And if you if you prefer to think of things in batting average terms, pull side 218, opposite field 539. He hit 539 going the other way. No Mike Mustakis here. Eric Hosmer for his career. He has an 84 WRC plus to the pull side. That's bad. And a 199 WRC plus to the opposite field. That's very good. Mm-hmm. So on Fangraphs, we have this information going back 16 years to 2002. We have splits information for everyone. And I wanted to find the biggest differences for players who have hit to the pull side and the other way. So for example, the biggest difference I could find, and for every player, I set a minimum of 500 batted balls in either direction. Biggest difference I could find among active players, uh, this probably won't surprise many of you, but Chris Young, extreme pull hitter. He has a 212 WRC plus to the pull side. Say Ben, do you have a guess for his opposite? Opposite field, WRC plus for his career, Chris Young. Uh, um, 67. Uh, not even close. <laughs> right, uh, 33. Keep going. <laughs> wow. 22. Keep going. Oh, my goodness. I feel 11. like you're actually somehow getting colder. Nope. Wait, I'm getting colder? <laughs> I mean, you're going in the right direction, but you're slowing down oh. your decline. Okay. Negative three. Keep going. <laughs> My gosh, <laughs> negative 
22. Negative 19, Chris Young. Wow. Chris Young, the other way, negative 19 WRC+. Plus. As I say every time, this is a statistic that has plus right in the name. Doesn't matter. Chris Young, negative. So his difference between pole and opposite field, 231 points of WRC+. Plus. That's crazy. Not number one, because since 2002, I don't know how many years of data there was for Frank Thomas. I don't remember when Frank Thomas stopped playing professional baseball, but in any case, as Frank Thomas was declining, boy, was he just pull side oriented. Opposite field hitter, negative 14 WRC plus, pull side hitter, 270. So... <laughs> Frank Thomas, a WRC plus difference, pull side opposite of 284 points. So that is the lead in that direction. But of course, for Eric Hosmer, we are talking about the other direction of all of the players in my sample, 300 some players. There was an average difference of plus 69 points of WRC plus to the uh, the pull side. So I think we all know that players prefer to hit to the pull side on average they are more productive there that's where they hit the ball the hardest so again the average is plus 69 the median is plus 71 eric hosmer is at negative 115 <laughs> points that rates him i don't want to say worst but fourth lowest fourth lowest in this group out of uh the 300 some players the name right above him david freeze who's at negative 119 points of wrc plus second to last second to lowest i guess christian yelich negative 127 and in last place or first place depending on how you sort things we've got joe mauer who has hit a 67 wrc plus to the pull side and 199 to the opposite field so looking at some of the names up here ryan howard is actually here he's right below eric hosmer but the funny thing is ryan howard was good to the pull side he was just amazing to the opposite field when ryan howard made contact he was a fantastic baseball player but that was kind of the problem <laughs> he had to make the contact. So, yes. and for example, Joey Votto is is here. Joey Votto has numbers that are very similar to Ryan Howard's pull side and opposite field. But the thing is that Joey Votto makes a lot more contact. And so therefore, Joey Votto is a far better baseball player. Jim Tomey is here too, because he was just amazing everywhere. But as I look at Hosmer, we we talk about like Christian Yelich's upside all the time and how Christian Yelich is a really good and desirable player. And he's kind of in a lot of ways the same as Hosmer except that he's I guess a, a better outfielder and Hosmer is just a seemingly overrated first baseman but I wonder how different the perception is of Yelich's offense versus Hosmer's offense because they look pretty similar hmm. yeah Hosmer's just another really perplexing case I, I don't know what I would do with him he basically projects to be a league average player essentially and maybe a, a bit better than that just because he almost never misses a game literally never missed a game this year but that's kind of his biggest draw I mean he's coming off his best offensive season but he's had almost as many average offensive seasons as he has had good offensive seasons so I just don't know we've talked about the difference between the perception of his defense and what the stats say about his defense so I mean if you take the less optimistic or, or rose-colored glasses version of Eric Hosmer he's just not that great a player at least <laughs> kind of uh, with the on-field stuff maybe he adds more value in the clubhouse but it's I don't know you look at the statistical profile and you don't necessarily think oh this is like a seven year 200 million or whatever numbers are getting thrown around there for him I just I don't see it so that's gonna be a, a really fascinating case also all right. Well, we have been talking for quite a while already. Maybe we can just get to a few emails and maybe we'll do a second email or partial 
email show just to get to more of them. But since you just mentioned Ryan Howard, I will segue from that to a question from Adam, who says, listening to episode 1134, I heard you describe Aaron Judge as an extreme player in good ways and bad ways. Lots of home runs, lots of walks, lots of strikeouts. It just reminded me of another player who once won Rookie of the Year with a similar skill set. Ryan Howard, is this a relevant data point for what to potentially expect from Judge, or do the similarities end at the power strikeouts and rookie of the year? I've done no research, so feel free to either give me the benefit of the doubt as you examine this, or ruthlessly mock me for such a comparison. And it is kind of a fun comparison, because they do have some things in common offensively, obviously both three true outcomes types, both guys who didn't really break in until their mid-20s. In Howard's case, maybe he was blocked by Jim Tomey, and that had something to do with it. Judge just had more things to straighten out in his game to earn that spot. But there are obvious parallels here. I think if you want to say that, I mean, you know, we think of this as a, a negative, a scary comparison for Aaron Judge, which, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be. Ryan Howard was at least for a while, a star and a really good player and an MVP. And, you know, sure, he was not maybe as good as the RPI totals made him look. And obviously our perception of him and his career is colored by his early and, and steep decline and the extension that he never should have gotten and all of that. But, you know, pretty good player. Certainly not what anyone is hoping that Aaron Judge turns out to be, though. So I guess the best hope for someone who is saying, no, please don't let Aaron Judge be Ryan Howard. Aaron Judge is much more athletic, I think, than Howard. He is a, a more well-rounded player. Howard was a first baseman and not an especially good one, I don't think, at least, you know, certainly not in his later years. And Judge is, or at least was this year, a, a very good corner outfielder and has a good arm and covers more ground than you would expect him to and is certainly faster than I think Howard probably ever was. So there's that. I think that is some reason for optimism. I don't know. Maybe if you want to talk about the hitting profile you just mentioned, the, the pull side and opposite side stuff, I don't know if Judge has that kind of differential. Seems like he has great power pretty much everywhere and maybe is a little less shift prone than Howard was anything else stick out to you here I think it there is the just the athleticism and and the shifting thing Howard I think was easily exposed against left-handed pitching as well and and Judge doesn't really have the same kind of platoon concerns so yeah Howard as a younger hitter was amazing like on contact few players were more successful than Ryan Howard but you give Judge Judge is a little more athletic he bats right-handed instead of lefty, and he's a he's more of a defensive player. Howard was always a first baseman or a DH. So even if Judge were to follow the Howard track right down to the major lower body injury later in his career, it's not that bad. It uh, it falls short maybe of being a Hall of Famer, but again, we don't have batted ball information to know exactly how hard Howard was hitting the ball. We can assume that he was hitting the ball very hard, but we can also assume that maybe he wasn't hitting the ball as hard as Aaron Judge, so Judge might have that advantage on him as well. So Howard, first of all, not even that bad of a comparison point, but I think that Judge has like three or four boxes that he checks that Howard didn't, which mm -hmm. uh, which is only even more encouraging. Now, interestingly, Howard's career contact rate was, I think, 67%, and this season, Aaron Judge's contact rate was 67%. So <laughs> yeah. there's a good matchup right there. 
Yeah, right. Okay. All right. Bob says, my friend and I have spent days arguing about this, and I feel like this is the best source from which to get an answer. Would a pitcher who went nine innings every single start, but also gave up five runs in each of those starts, be a valuable player to have on your team? I'd say you'd lose most of your games that he pitched. My friend says you'd finish close enough to 500 in his starts to make the value of giving your bullpen one game in five off worth it. What do you guys think? And I answered this in an email, and sorry, Bob, but I have (laughs) to come closer to siding with your friend here than you. And I did ask for additional details and parameters here, and I haven't heard back from Bob yet. I'm I'm curious about whether he only goes nine innings and gives up five runs, or do you have to let him go nine innings? Can you take him out earlier and just have you know, prorated runs allowed or not? I'm just going to go with the spirit of the question and say that he just— does this automatically every time and you don't really have a choice because I think that probably makes the question more interesting. So if we say that's the case, this guy just gives up five runs and goes nine innings, I would say that definitely this guy has value and almost every team would want to roster him, if not every team probably, just because the average team in baseball this year allowed or scored 4.65 runs per game. So five runs per game is not much more than that. And... This guy spares your bullpen, gives you innings. So I would say that every team would want this guy, almost every team would want this guy instead of, say, their fifth starter and maybe their fourth starter. Because with those guys, you're already conceding that they're going to be worse than the league average. They'd probably allow runs at a five runs per game type rate, if not worse, and they don't give you as many innings. So I guess you could argue that having to throw him for nine innings is a negative at times. Like if you're in a very close game and you want to pull the guy for a reliever, like it, it certainly allows less flexibility and, and ability to leverage the, the game state and your other assets. But I think the, the benefits far outweigh the minuses. So let me know if this changes your answer at all. But baseball reference does have a table that I was able to find. And when teams allowed five runs, exactly five runs mm-hmm. uh, this year. There were 540 games and they won just 38% of those games. Uh-huh. So does that change your answer at all? Is that a worse winning percentage than you expected? Uh, No, I don't think that surprises me that much. And I would think that if you could look up the percentage of, you know, games started by your nominal fourth or fifth starter or your worst starter in your rotation at any given time, you'd probably end up with a similar or even worse percentage i would i would think because most fifth starters are worse than this hypothetical automatic complete game guy right so i think you would live with that you'd say okay we're gonna lose most of his start so bob is right in that respect that you would lose most of the games that this guy pitches but i think you're already living with that in the case of most are you know the, the back end guys in your rotation and this guy gives you the advantage of helping you out in the game before and after because you can Mm -hmm. use your bullpen planning not to have to use any relievers on the days that he pitches. So I I don't think that changes my answer. Okay. Yeah. All right. You disagree or that sounds sounds right to you? No, that's fine. Okay. All right. Alex says, unless I've just missed some giant area of sabermetric discussion, has there been much focus on identifying what the optimal pitch for any situation is and getting the pitcher to throw it? I'm sure there are pregame discussions between the pitcher, catcher, pitching coach, and whoever else they'd go over this type of strategy with. But outside of the rare situations where the coach comes to the mound, the most essential part of every baseball play, the pitch, is just determined by the pitcher and catcher. Given how 
much time we spend agonizing over things a manager might only do once or twice a game? Are we just taking it on faith that pitchers and catchers have figured this one out? I know there are some catchers who have reputations as good game callers, but I've never really seen fleshed out what this means and what we could take from it in the way that framing has become a very tangible thing. And I guess I should mention that even in the majors, there are some teams and some managers that call pitches from the bench, from the dugout, but I think... Even so, the the question applies. You're transferring that responsibility to someone else, but that someone else may not have devoted all that much time and effort to figuring out the the optimal pitch either. Yeah, I think that we do kind of assume that pitchers and catchers have it worked out. And a sort of fundamental point to understand is that I think in, in any given situation, there is no such thing as the one optimal pitch. Now, maybe that seems counterintuitive, but I, I think if it were that easy to figure out the one optimal pitch, then the batter would be able to figure out what that one optimal pitch would be and yeah. so then it no longer is the optimal pitch and so if you uh if you listen to mitchell lickman at all then he'll talk your ear off about game theory which is all very interesting but in essence in any situation there is sort of an optimal pitch mix unless i guess you are a one pitch pitcher in which case well you've you got one pitch you should throw it but in any given situation if you're a typical fastball slider changeup guy, then there is going to be some optimal kind of unknowable mix of frequency odds. And so, of course, you're only throwing one pitch at a time, but maybe the, the optimal mix there is 50% fastballs, 30% sliders, and 20% changeups or something. And, and you just have to, at all times, as the pitcher and as the catcher, try to decide on your pitches such that the hitter can't know what's coming. If you ever end up in a situation where you are predictable, then that is going to be a, a disservice because the whole point of pitching is to not let the hitter know what's going to be coming. Mm-hmm. So as far as studying game calling, this is essentially a game calling question, right? And as far yeah. as studying it is concerned, good luck. People yeah. have tried. People have taken some, I think, maybe good steps, but it's just so freaking difficult to yeah. know how to even begin or what your point of comparison is. So it, it does feel like a situation where maybe there is a lot of value that's out there that we don't know about or we just can't measure. Or maybe someone like... I don't know. I think you and I have both heard rumors that, for example, like Yosemite Grandal is not a very good game caller, but I don't know where that necessarily comes from. I don't know how backed up that is with evidence. Mm-hmm. Maybe it undoes all of his measured framing value. Maybe it's worse. Maybe someone like Jonathan Lucroy is a such a good game caller that even as his framing value goes down, he's still a really good catcher. I don't know. I'm open I'm open to the idea, but I just I don't know how we're going to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely players who are probably under-throwing some pitch. They should be throwing more. There have been many stories written about players who've turned themselves around because they started relying more on their best pitch or they started throwing it more in certain counts or something and so I I think there are cases like that where guys do get to the majors and have a lot of room for improvement in that area but it is a really tough thing you know maybe it's a little easier to look at a guy's overall stuff and mix and say well he doesn't throw this one type of pitch enough because it's a really good pitch but I think looking at it on a pitch by pitch basis it's very important and also really difficult and there's a lot 
we don't know and we can't really analyze from afar like does the pitcher feel comfortable in this pitch does he want to throw that pitch will he have the conviction to throw that pitch well and you know does he have a good feel for it on this day and how did he set up the hitter in the previous pitch or the previous play appearances in that game maybe he's been trying to you know show him a certain pitch a lot so that he's able to catch him by surprise with another pitch or it's really it's hard because you have to analyze the hitter's strengths and weaknesses as well as the pitcher's strengths and weaknesses and how he's doing on this specific day and the umpire so there's just a lot to try to factor into this discussion and I don't know that we're anywhere really close to being able to say who's good at it or or to make recommendations on an individual pitch basis. And so, you know, you fall back on kind of post hoc judgments about, well, you can't get beat with your, you know, third best pitch or something in this situation. But often you do want to throw your third best pitch just because you can't throw your best pitch every time or it won't be your best pitch anymore. So it's really hard. And as for the catcher stats, I think there have been some attempts and Harry Pavitas and Jonathan Judge and those guys have done some work on this, but it's really still sort of, you know, like they'll look up the value that a catcher seems to have just based on comparing various batteries, pitcher catcher combos and saying well this catcher seems to be worth this amount defensively just based on how pitcher's performance varies when they're pitching to him as opposed to someone else and it's even more complicated than that but they'll come up with kind of a number okay this catcher seems to be worth this many runs and we know how much the framing is worth and we know how much the arm is worth and the blocking is worth so the game calling must be everything else that is about as sophisticated as game calling stats have gotten and maybe there's some some signal there but it's very shadowy and even if you get a sense that a guy might be a good game caller you don't necessarily know why or what it is about his game calling that is so valuable and maybe it all comes down to the relationship with the pitcher even more so than the specific pitch you're calling if you're kind of coaxing the pitcher through the game and making him think that it's the right pitch at all times maybe that's more important than it actually being the right pitch so it's a really really difficult kind of line of inquiry and I'm I'm sure that some teams have done work on this that would probably blow our minds but in the public sphere there isn't a lot out there although there have been some initial inroads but you know it is really important and it is really hard I have uh, I have some breaking news okay to announce uh, first of all according to Giancarlo Stanton's Fangraphs page trade talks between the Marlins and the Red Sox for Stanton quote may be heating up Ooh. And according to Mark Carrig and David Lennon of Newsday, the Mets are weighing a pursuit for Japanese pitching and hitting sensation Shohei Otani. Weighing a pursuit. Wow. <laughs> How about that? Huh. That changes my entire understanding of, of the market. Weighing a pursuit. Just let reporters go on vacation this yes. time of year. Let them just <laughs> leave for a month and then return. Yes. We don't need this. Every single team-specific writer or blogger has written the does this team make sense for Otani and or Stanton post at this point. So I, I have sympathy for all of them, and I'm sure people want to read those things, but they can only go to one team each, so I don't know. Unless, what if they didn't? <laughs> well, Otani still might not, but what if Otani? What if he pitched for the Yankees and hit for the Mets. <laughs> yeah, that could work. Sometimes. Not usually in the same city. 
despite being based in the same city. So that would be a complication. But, you know, we have planes these days. You could <laughs> pitch one day, go to the other team on another day. I like it. What would that player be worth? What would you want just the hitting of Otani when he's perpetually jet-lagged? What would, what would you sign him for? <laughs> I don't know. All right, let's see. One more maybe we can take here. Andy says, So I was talking with my wife during Game 5 of the World Series. The game was built up to be a pitcher's duel, Kershaw versus Keuchel. Who can go the distance? Who will break first? And my wife asked me a question that I couldn't answer. What happens if one of these guys needs to take a leak? And, God forbid, what if they had some bad Chinese takeout before taking the mound? Can coaches ask for and can umpires grant bathroom breaks? All I can recall in recent gameplay is Prince Fielder running to the dugout for a drink of water, or that other time Prince Fielder needed to borrow sunglasses from a fan in the stands. I turn to you guys for the answer. Also, apparently, I pay way too much attention to Prince Fielder. Well, (laughs) baseball players have one advantage, I guess, in that they sort of get a break roughly every 10 minutes or so, depending on on what's happening. If if your team is up to bat, then you have some time on your hands. And if your team is in the field, then hopefully, unless it's the playoffs and Bruce Bochy is your manager, then you're only going to be out there for 8 to 15 minutes. Although now, you do have the opportunity sometimes. Rarely, I think, do you have a situation where all of a sudden, you really need the bathroom like i don't think it uh i don't think it sneaks up on you like that especially during a game when you're generally like any eating that you've done is now hours past you know, maybe you have like an energy bar or some sort of like energy drink during the game but you're not going like straight from takeout chinese to playing shortstop for like the cardinals you know <laughs> that doesn't uh, that doesn't happen you have some time to let it settle sometimes when players have food poisoning or other similar symptoms they will be scratched because of flu-like symptoms and it is a very flu-like symptom i can uh, i can assure you but i think that rare is the circumstance where you're just out there and you're like oh man i really need a bathroom right now like that just crept up on me and i need to go <laughs> that doesn't happen often enough for I for me to notice during games, but I I did I was able to pull up an article that the New York Times wrote about this in like 2011 that I sent back, and I don't remember all the specifics, but we've all heard the stories of players or coaches getting like stuck in the bathroom during a game, and those can be funny, but sometimes apparently players will uh, will run in for a, a quick leak during like a pitching change or something because you know a pitching change takes what two and with a commercial break, probably like two and a half minutes. That's a mm-hmm. lot of, I used to, when I was young, I used to time myself. If I'd be watching television in the living room, I'd be like, all right, commercial break. Maybe it's a minute. I want to see how quickly I can come back here while going to take a leak. You find your entertainment where you can. And I, I would get a, down to like 43 seconds. Like <laughs> I'd be satisfied. Now, you know, this is a smaller house. This isn't a baseball stadium, but still you probably, you're not like in an Austin Powers situation where you're having to take a leak for like seven and a half minutes, you know? So you just kind of, you run in, you go do your business. The bathroom can't be that far removed from the dugout. That would be irresponsible. And then you, you jog back out to your position and then you just have the pitcher maybe slow down his warm up throws or maybe throw an extra one and hope the umpire is noticing or something. And then you just kind of get back to, to where you are. And that's the worst case scenario is you're like a corner outfielder and you have the furthest to go. But I think that uh, I think this is not a, a major concern. How often a pitcher has to just go take a leak? I don't know. But, you know, sometimes pitchers get really sweaty and, and maybe you uh, maybe you just wouldn't notice uh, at all. Yeah. If they just kind of did what they needed to do in the field. 
Yeah, this is, uh, I think, an area where baseball players have it easy. There was this this Times article, as you noted or you linked to in that email response. You cited this article from 2011 that the Times wrote, Sports defer to TV, but not to athletes in need of relief. And, you know, they mentioned, like, Tour de France and, uh, I guess, you know, marathons and lots of other situations where athletes are indisposed much more so than baseball players but it it starts with this anecdote i'll just read the first few paragraphs here time waits for no one especially when it is time to go to the bathroom monday night's mets phillies game this is in august of 2011 was delayed briefly because angel pagan could not be located when it was his turn to bat pagan was not in the on-deck circle he was not in the dugout he was in the upstairs clubhouse dealing with the sudden and unavoidable effects of a stomach virus quote when i finished i looked up at the tv and i see nick Evans at three and two, full count, Pagan said. Thank goodness for in lavatory televisions. Never has a man wished so much for a few foul balls so he could wash his hands. Pagan <laughs> did get to the plate and grounded out and you know, this article goes through all of the sports and how they handle this, but baseball definitely I think has it easiest with all the frequent breaks and I don't know like if a a pitcher actually got sick on the mound or something or in the batter's box I mean I assume there would be some grace period or some brief delay I mean we have injury delays right and this is an injury of a sort so I would think you'd maybe get a break to run to the bathroom I mean most dugouts have bathrooms just in the tunnel right out of the dugout so you don't have to go far and I would think maybe you'd you'd pause the game and let someone go throw up and run back I'm sure that has happened so uh yeah baseball has it easy but I don't know that we've seen this tested all that often on help a gun okay so let's see this article was published on August 23rd 2011 so I'm going to assume that therefore Monday would have been August 22nd let's uh Let's confirm. August 22nd, Monday. Okay. On Helpagon, leadoff for the Mets. Let's see. When was uh, Nick Evans was at three and two? Okay. Let's uh, let's confirm this. So Pagan led off. He flew out in the first inning. Then he came up again in the third. He struck out. Okay. Let's see. That's not going to do it. Top of the... Uh, Top of the fifth, top of the fifth. Yeah, Nick Evans worked a seven-pitch. Nick Evans uh, got to a full count. Then he fouled the pitch off. That's good. Bought Pagan a little extra second. And then Nick Evans walked. Pagan, he actually came out and he swung at the first pitch from Cliff Lee. And he grounded out. I don't know what I was expecting. Maybe he just wanted it to be over with as, uh, as quickly as possible. Maybe, unsurprisingly, in the bottom of the fifth, on hell, Pagan was replaced, removed from the game for Jason Preeti. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we can take bathroom breaks now. I think we're finished. (laughs) We have talked enough. So we'll be back. We'll maybe take some more emails next time just to empty out the mailbag a bit. But this has been fun. It was Pridey. Jason Pridey. I'm sorry, everyone. (laughs) All right. I think it's also Mark Carrig, just so we set the record straight (sighs) on all pronunciations. I know that's your your favorite part of podcasting. (laughs) Everything is complicated. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who've already done so include David Foster, Marco Lepe, Andrew Cordellini, Emily Fiasco, 
and Michael Juntanen. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes, as many of you have continued to do. I get an email every time one of you leaves an iTunes review. It's always a, a nice little shot of affirmation, so I appreciate all of you who are still doing that from time to time. I also appreciate Dylan Higgins and his editing assistants. Please keep your questions and comments coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We'll be back to talk more soon. Yeah.